0: Good morning, Champion Forest. How are you guys today? It's an honor to be here all the way from Baltimore. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and open up, we're going to study the whole chapter in essence. Before we dive in, I want to share a little story with you. So my family and I, we moved our family of seven at the time, so Kaylee, myself, and our five kids from the Birmingham, Alabama suburbs where we had... Uh, a pretty big house. It was modest, but it was comfortable for us. We had five acres, which was on the Warrior River, which is the largest river in Alabama. So we like to play outside and play in the water and play in and fi- uh, fish and things like that. Uh, and after serving in music ministry for 17 years, we felt called to move to Baltimore, and where we moved into a 800 square foot two-bedroom row home. Three sets of bunks and one bedroom where our five kids slept, one empty bunk. Kelly and I had the other room. We rented out our basement because rent was so expensive and we couldn't necessarily afford the rent even in a lower middle class to lower class neighborhood. Uh, So just figured out how to put all the pieces together. In our eight years in Baltimore, we've started three different locations in relatively hard neighborhoods, and we're committed to reaching marginalized people. Recently, I was headed to uh, our newest location. It's called Curtis Bay. It's one of the top five most violent neighborhoods in Baltimore. Baltimore has 258 distinct neighborhoods. We're year in and year out the most violent city in America. Sometimes St. Louis likes to compete with us. You guys have your champion Astros. The Orioles haven't been champions in a little while, so at least we get to be champion in something, right? Violence, not the thing you want to be champion of for what it's worth. Uh, But I was driving to our third location and the way that this neighborhood is set up is there's a block in the middle, the unit block and there's a two-lane, one-way road on one side of that block and a two-lane going the other way. So I was headed to our location, and there was a car in front of me in the right lane, I was in the left lane, and all of a sudden, this red, old, beat-up Dodge minivan just swerved hard to the left and boom, crashed into the line of cars that were parallel parked on the other side of the street. Smoke billowing out from underneath the hood. I had my six cars in our own van, Kelly was at home studying for a test she had the next morning. So before I hopped out of the cars, because of the kind of neighborhood we're in, I looked at my kids and said, do not get out of the car. You guys have all spoken with that kind of tone to your children before, right? They knew not to get out of the car. So I jumped out, locked the doors, ran over to this car that had just crashed, and I opened the door to see uh, a, a lady, turns out her name was Cindy, she's in her early 30s, and she was slumped over the steering wheel. And I tapped her on the shoulder, and I was like, ma'am, you need to get out of the car. And she looked up at me. She was conscious, but she had hit her face on the steering wheel, and there was blood coming out of her nose, out of her mouth. It was not a pretty sight. And when she finally responded to me, I'm telling her, get out of the car. She looked at me, and she reached out her arms to me, and it wasn't what I expected. She said, my brother, I love you. She was clearly confused because this was not my sister. So I said, all right, what's your name? She told me her name was Cindy. I'm like, you need to get out of the car. Like if if you're not injured to the point that you can't move, get out of the car. And she started trying, but she was buckled in. So I said, Cindy, unbuckle your seatbelt. So she reached over and she was moving like really slowly. And she messed with the seatbelt for just a minute and then couldn't get it. And then just started struggling against the seatbelt again. So a couple more times I tried to, to tell her, Unbuckle the seatbelt, then you can get out. All the while, she said, my brother, hug me, kiss me, I love you. That's the only things that she ever said to me. But with my encouragement, despite not being able to unbuckle her seatbelt, she was able to climb free through the seatbelt. And I promise you guys, this story is true. You don't know where it's going, I promise. As she climbed through the seatbelt with my kids in the car right there, it proceeded to pull everything, the waist down, off of her. So now, Cindy's trying to hug me, bloody. My brother, I love you, kiss me, hug me. And I'm like, Cindy, please, just don't touch me. So she starts chasing me, and I'm weaving through the parallel parked cars, straight up, This, this true story. Every time I run by our car, I'm like, don't get out of the car. And then all of a sudden, from a Baltimore City row home, there's this older, I'm guessing 75-ish, wiry, sinewy lady that has come screaming out of her front door, and just boom, like D'Amico Ryans when he played at Alabama, took Cindy to the ground. And she said, this man said, don't touch him. I said, thank you for that. I've got to go preach at our church in like 10 minutes. Can you call 911? And she did, and that's the last I saw of Cindy. But the reason I share that story with you is because she's representative of so many people that we serve in Baltimore. There are people that aren't able to think clearly. They aren't able to think and function in healthy ways because of all the things that they've experienced in the years of their lives on this earth. Nehemiah chapter five, we're gonna study the whole chapter but I'm gonna give us one verse to start with. Here's what the Bible says. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Let's pray together and we'll invite God to speak clearly and boldly into our lives this morning. Father, you're so good. And God, I'm grateful personally that I get to interact regularly with people like Cindy. I think sometimes in my experience prior to Baltimore, Um, I found it really easy easy to insulate myself from the deep challenges that people not only in our own cities, across our nation, throughout the world, God, so many people experience brokenness in the worst ways. And I know for me, it was easy just to kind of look the other way and and go about my own business. God, I'm also thankful for the Bible that... um, allows us to see clearly into Nehemiah's story and the way that he engaged with people who are experiencing um, just oppression in their own lives. God, speak to us this morning. Make us like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys are probably familiar with the story that we read in the book of Nehemiah, but I just want to give us a brief background, establish some context for where we are today in chapter 5. So because of Israel's disobedience, God had um, sent discipline into their lives. There had been certain expressions of judgment. But just like I am, far too often Israel was slow to respond to the things God was trying to teach them. So eventually God allowed for the Assyrians to come in, invade um, Israel, and to begin to oppress them such that Israel wasn't free in the ways that God intends and had designed for them to be. So after a few generations, the Babylonians rose to power. For a long time, Assyria had been the prominent nation in that part of the world. Babylonians rose to power, overthrew Assyria, and you guys are probably familiar with Daniel's story. Nebuchadnezzar came in and deported so many of the Jewish people. So now, not only were they oppressed, but they had been removed from their homeland, everything that was familiar and comfortable. Fast forward a few more years, Daniel actually knew that God from Jeremiah had prophesied that they would be in captivity for 70 years. So, after about 70 years, um, Persia came in and established themselves as the preeminent power and um, dominated Babylon and King Cyrus graciously. And we understand from the Bible that it's the Lord who turns the hearts of kings. And God, in control of the situation, sent the Israelites back home to reestablish Jerusalem and to reestablish themselves in a place of God's blessing among the nations. So this is about 96 years after um, that the Israelites had originally been sent home by King Cyrus that Nehemiah comes into the forefront of the story. So the wall is now being built. Nehemiah is overseeing as the governor who's been appointed by um, Artaxerxes, the rebuilding of the wall, and the surrounding nations, they've seen what it looks like when God blesses his people in the past. So the world who opposes God, when God blesses his people, the, the world sees God's people as a threat, and they weren't thrilled with the walls being rebuilt. Okay, they've got the temple, they can worship their people, that's fine, but they're not secure, therefore they're not really there without the wall. But when there's a wall, then there's extra security and there's a deeper establishing of them as a presence and as a power. And we can see in chapter four that the surrounding nations came against and sought to oppress Nehemiah and the Jewish people as they were rebuilding the wall. But hey, that's what we should expect, right? When God blesses his people, those on the outside aren't going to look in a friendly way upon that. It's exactly what we should expect. But when we get to chapter five, We see not only injustice or oppression from the outside, but we see this. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against, not outsiders, but their own countrymen. Now, when we see the language of outcry in the Bible, it reminds me of something very specific. If we look back to Exodus chapter 2, you guys know the story of the Exodus, Joseph favor with the Pharaoh, the king. But after that king died, they forgot about the way that they had loved um, God's people and Joseph and his family members and began to oppress the Israelites. And what Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 says, After a long time the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God and God heard their groaning. Imagine the outcries of the Israelites. They were being abused. They were being oppressed. It was demanded that they carry out work that was absolutely impossible for them to do. They were in a helpless situation, and they saw no healthy path forward, and they cried out. That's the same language of outcry that we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. These Jewish people, even though their walls, their city, their temple where they would worship, it was being rebuilt. They were being oppressed, not only from outsiders, but now from insiders. And if even our fellow countrymen are oppressing us, how in the world will we ever experience the blessings that God desires for us? They cried out, and I am inclined to believing just like we see in Exodus chapter two, God heard their cries and so did Nehemiah. Let's look further. Verse 2, some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. In Genesis chapter 1, the first blessing that God pronounced upon people, upon humanity, he had just made in his image was this. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and in essence, exercise dominion or authority over the creation which I've entrusted to you. That first blessing, be fruitful and multiply, was the means by which God would bless his people, and we see here that in Nehemiah chapter 5, the sons and daughters of these Israelites were numerous. God was blessing them, but there was a famine, and they were essentially starving. Sometimes in Scripture, when we see a famine, it's an act or an expression of God's judgment upon disobedient people, but here... This is not the case. If you guys are familiar with the story earlier, Nehemiah had called for all the men essentially to leave behind their fields and to come and work on the wall. It wasn't an expression of God's discipline or judgment. It was simply a, a practical matter because they weren't at home working in the fields. So they were multiplying. Sons and daughters were numerous. But because the families had devoted themselves to rebuilding the wall, there wasn't enough food to go around, at least not in the ways they were accustomed to in the past, and now some of the families who weren't in positions of privilege or authority, they were legitimately starving. Others were saying, verse 3, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we've borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our own fields and vineyards. And listen to this, We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. So if we want to take a loan from the bank, normally they want to see a clear track record, a good credit report, but oftentimes they often require collateral, right? So at this time in EMI 5 where there was this famine, where there wasn't enough food, the needier people, and we don't need to miss out, there were other people, they were in positions of privilege that could have shared. They just didn't. But the needier people, in order to get loans to buy food, they had put up their homes, their fields, their vineyards as collateral. And in that culture at the time, the next step wasn't just if they couldn't pay to have their properties repossessed. The next step is they would mortgage essentially their children as servants to the people who were in positions of power and privilege and they said we've essentially given away everything that we have. We've given away our homes and our land. We've even given our children as servants and we still can't pay back the lenders. And it wasn't outsiders, it was fellow countrymen who were called to be generous to their people. Imagine the desperation these moms and dads who have sent their children away because they can't afford to feed them and they've borrowed everything they possibly can according to the things that they owned. That's what's behind the outcry. For the moms and dads in the room, think about the condition of your heart, the desperation that you would feel if you were in that position that you wanted desperately, if nothing else, just to get back my kids. But I can't. That's what's behind the outcry. And what I want us to understand In Baltimore, Cindy and so many others like her are that desperate and they're crying for help. And God's calling us to tune our ears to hear those cries. But that reality is present not only in Baltimore, but I would venture to guess that we're surrounded by people right now who are in desperate situations. And it's not just the hungry or the homeless, in the inner city, there are people all around that deal with brokenness, that's overwhelming. There are people who are desperate for answers. There are people who feel helpless to change anything. They have no hope whatsoever. But I know somebody with hope. It's you guys. Jesus offers hope where there can't be found any anywhere else. Verse six, Nehemiah became extremely angry He says, When I heard their outcry and these complaints, and after seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, We've done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen, and these are those who had been sold as servants to outsiders. We've done our best to buy them back who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Recently I saw a video from David Platt. He serves um, at a church in McLean, Virginia right now. He was previously in Birmingham, my hometown. Uh, So I've been exposed, been familiar with his ministry really since he got started. But recently I saw a video and he runs Radical Ministries and he was making an appeal for people like you and me to do something to reach those who are unreached. And he said, and this is what the video was about, He said, right now we can turn on the news, and there's all kind of bad stuff. In Baltimore, there are murders almost every day. There's all kinds of violent crime. Uh, For the rest of the world, you guys see tough things, hard things on the news all the time. But if nothing else, we're seeing the Hamas-Israeli war that's happening. And there's a lot of hard stuff. And when we see the stories of dozens or hundreds of people, including some Americans, being taken hostage and held for ransom and their lives being threatened if the things don't happen that Hamas wants to see happen. We see that, and hopefully it moves us to compassion or even indignance or anger in a certain sense. And it should. But what David Platt said is, but for those of us on this side of the ocean and the securities, the conveniences that are available to us, We see the bad news and we're moved, but then we turn it off and we move on with our lives. He says, I think it would be beneficial for some of us to choose not to move on so readily and so quickly. Nehemiah saw the injustices, the desperation of his fellow countrymen, and he became extremely angry. But he didn't swipe and scroll on past the bad news. He chose to enter into it and to do something about it. So he confronted his fellow countrymen. He confronted the nobles and the officials. And and the language of the Bible says he actually accused them. Sometimes, for what it's worth, when we accuse others, they don't receive it very well. And even though he was the one in charge, he was the governor, he had hundreds of nobles around him. And it's totally possible that they could have gone sideways and it could have turned out really badly for Nehemiah but he wasn't content just to sit back and watch the injustice happen without doing something about it. So he boldly, and this is the reason that we're calling this sermon a bold response to injustice. He boldly took action. He didn't just allow himself to be moved, but he allowed what he felt in his heart to move him to taking action, which was accusing and confronting those who were taking advantage of those who were um, less privileged in their society. Then I said, verse 9, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? And then verse 10, Nehemiah said this, even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let's stop charging them interest. Stop abusing Stop taking advantage of those less advantaged for the sake of your own comfort and convenience, enriching or even indulging yourself. Stop it. The language of stop reminds me of repentance. In Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the Bible says that Jesus came proclaiming the good news. He came proclaiming the gospel. And what he said is the time is at hand, meaning God's working out his purposes, all the ways he's promised it's right now. The kingdom of God has come near. It's here. It's with you. It's even in some of you, even as we speak. And then the next thing, the third part of that gospel message that Jesus proclaimed to the listeners that day was, repent and believe the gospel. Sometimes we think of repentance in a very specific way. When I was probably in elementary school and Uh, Southern Baptist Sunday School class, I remember learning that repentance is, we're going one direction, namely the ways of the world and away from God. Repentance is turning around, going exactly the opposite direction, now pursuing after God. That's a great picture of repentance. But recently, I've put together something about repentance that I never connected before. When Jesus said, repent and believe, what? I've naturally thought of was repent and do good. I think a lot of times we see repentance as we're doing bad, let's turn around and now do good. But we're all familiar, the greatest command, Jesus said, is that we love God with everything that we are and the second is like it, that we love our neighbor as ourself. Foundationally and fundamentally to everything we believe is this idea of it begins in the heart. And I think that applies to this idea of repentance as well. Repentance is about our doing wrong and our turning and now doing right. But even more fundamentally, it's about our loving or even believing wrong. That's why I believe Jesus said, repent and believe. It's about changing what's inside of us, in our minds, in our hearts before it's about the doing. If we believe things rightly, if we see the truth clearly, then it will overflow in the ways that we live our lives. With Nehemiah, he looked around at all these people that were oppressing their fellow countrymen. And what he realized is their values were upside down. They thought they would enrich their lives by taking advantage of others. They thought they would be happy and fulfilled by manipulatively taking from others so that they themselves could have more. And Nehemiah told him to stop and to repent and believe the truth And then that would overflow into those who are in positions of privilege, blessing others and not taking advantage. Look at verse 14. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. So Nehemiah, he was well-respected. He... um, just through the ways that he lived his life, had earned the favor and even had earned the love of those who were in positions of authority over him. That's why he was entrusted to leave and to go back uh, to begin rebuilding the wall. He had the favor of those who were in positions of authority. And that was associated with all kinds of perks and privileges, including um, certain food allotments and other financial resources that were made available for him, not only to take care of his household, of his family, but also to take care of the 150 nobles that served alongside him that he was responsible for. He declined it all. Think about that. He had family members and officials that he was responsible, but he sustained them according to his own hard work and sweat, refusing the privileges that were afforded him by his position. Why did he do that? I think it's because he wanted to share in the experience of those who were around him. He wanted to endure, not in some you know, high castle where he was insulated, but he wanted to endure and share in the same experiences of those he was responsible to not lead and oversee necessarily, but to serve and to bless. In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus... Even though He is God and for eternity past had lived in heaven in perfect fellowship within the context of the Trinity, He saw that not as a privilege to be held on to, but instead He released that privilege and lowered Himself. He emptied Himself is the language of Philippians 2 by taking on not only our flesh and all its weaknesses and all its sufferings and struggles in His divinity. Jesus has it all, but in his humanity, Jesus took on our own weaknesses. He not only endured that, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, which was expressed most fully through his excruciating death, the humility that he endured on the cross. What Nehemiah did by giving up the privileges afforded the governor, Nehemiah didn't understand this, but he was pointing forward to Jesus who would empty himself of his divine prerogatives and privileges in order to serve you and me. Because the truth is, I think we're a lot more like Cindy than sometimes we care to admit. That day that I encountered her on the streets of Baltimore, she was high, she was out of her mind. It wasn't even possible that I could engage with her in a healthy and clear way. And I think sometimes... We fail to see the truth that God reveals in Scripture. Before we were saved, we probably thought, ah, I'm okay. We were probably satisfied in the things of the world, but thankfully God was kind to reveal to us the truth that we're in desperate need of help. That's the message of the Gospel. So I want us to ask ourselves a couple of questions this morning. How did Cindy end up where she was? Is she responsible for her own life? Absolutely. She's made choices. But we also need to understand that there are people, I don't know too much about her story. I haven't seen her since that day. I had about 10 minutes total with her. But I'd be willing to bet that she has some really difficult traumas in her background. We're surrounded in Baltimore by people with addiction issues. And there are people who take advantage. There's injustice of people who abuse that reality and put them in positions where they take from them in order to enrich themselves. In Baltimore, there are parents who abuse their kids and the kids grow up with all kinds of weight that they don't know how to carry or to deal with effectively. In my church, and this is no exaggeration, there are legitimately dozens of women that I've sat down with them and helped them to work through struggles, and I found out that they were prostituted by their addict moms as early as two years old. We've probably got over 20 ladies in our church this morning that that's their story. So they're responsible for their lives. And I'm not advocating for some kind of social justice. Nehemiah certainly wasn't advocating for a social gospel. But what we need to understand is there are injustices and social realities that don't remove the burden of responsibility for our individual choices, but that do bear much weight on the struggles that people carry throughout their lives. We've all experienced struggles. We were all slaves to sin. We were oppressed. But Jesus... Stepped out of heaven and into our reality so that we had the opportunity to be delivered from that. And I believe the truth is that every one of us, we're either in Nehemiah's story, the people who are being oppressed, we're the oppressors, or we're Nehemiahs who are called to work on behalf of the oppressed. And in as much as we're willing to lay down our privileges, and in as much as we're willing to make legitimate sacrifices for those who aren't as privileged as we are, then we reflect the reality of Jesus who stepped out of heaven and came to us in our brokenness. We're surrounded by people that not only experience brokenness in the worst ways, that are crying out in desperation, but we're surrounded by people who will experience justice. God's wrath will be satisfied. God is a just God, and he requires a payment for sin. And Cindy, unless she repents, not only what she does, but what she believes and what she loves and the things that motivate her, she will be required to pay the sin debt that she's earned. But don't miss this. God would much rather our debt be satisfied, not in our own payment, but in Jesus' payment on our behalf. We are the ones with the message of hope for the hopeless who are crying out. And for many of us, I don't know the details of you guys' lives, but I know for me, I'm a missionary in Baltimore. We gave up a lot in a certain sense to be there, but I'm still in a position of privilege to minister the hope of Jesus to the many who are hopeless. Guys, I want you to understand, I am no hero. All the time when I go places like this, it's not uncommon for people to say, Jeff, thank you for... Your sacrifice for leaving behind what you left in Birmingham, Alabama, to go to Baltimore. I imagine it's really hard, and it is. But I'm no hero. I don't even like to think in terms of sacrifice. Here's why. Yesterday morning, before I got dropped off at the airport, my wife drove through Chick-fil-A, and I got like an egg white grill. and grilled Chick-fil-A on an English muffin. It's like five bucks, which is very expensive, Right? But nobody, when I got to the airport, did I say, I went and spent five bucks on that English muffin. Oh, man, I bet that sacrifice was worth it. Thank you for sacrificing that. It's just a matter of economy. Listen to me. The souls of Cindy's and Deja's and Sarah's and all those ladies I just described to you in our church are worth far more than everything I could give up. It's just a matter of economy. It's not a sacrifice, but I pay just a little bit with my life. And God works through me, much like Nehemiah, to buy something that's worth far more than what I could ever give up. I promise you, if you'll choose to follow Jesus faithfully, he'll use you in that same way. Let's pray together. Father, today, God, we love you. And we're grateful for all the ways you show your kindness to us. God, help us to choose every day to be angry in righteous ways in the same way that we see in Nehemiah's life. Help us to choose not to scroll on past the bad news and to live only in the good news. Help us to choose to share in the struggles, the sufferings of the people around us. God, at the end of this chapter, Nehemiah, I prayed, Lord, remember me and the things that I've done for these people. That was a bold prayer, God, that he would confidently say, look at my life, remember it. Remember the things that I've done because I believe honestly that I've lived in the ways that you've called me to. Help that to be our same bold prayer, our same bold response to injustice. Help that to be our testimony that we've spent our lives in order to invest in things that are worth far more than myself. God, I'm grateful for Champion Forest, for their commitment to the gospel, to missions throughout our nation and throughout the world. God, I pray your richest blessings upon these people. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world we would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus in person on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.